As I said, it is good. Trip to Chad, and it was profitable time, but it is great to be home and to, to be here with you again. I, I do want to thank you for the prayers that you gave. I know on my behalf while I was gone traveling, I appreciate that. Tonight, Mike Coley and I will give a, a fuller report of our trip, so I encourage you to come back there. Um, hopefully, we'll be relatively short, so you can still see most of the Super Bowl, but I encourage you to come back and hear what God is doing, because frankly, what God is doing is far more important than the Super Bowl. I, I do want to mention, before we turn to our sermon, just one um, word of caution to our church family here. This week there was an email scheme that went out that many of the people in our church received. Someone purported to be me. They created a fake account under my name. They used a picture off our website for that account. And, and then they set out what's really a phishing scheme, trying to prey upon the, the people that they know are compassionate people. They, they target churches for that reason because churches are filled with compassionate people and they, they claim to, to be asking for money to, to give, in this case, uh, to cancer patients, but it's all a scheme to get credit cards from you. So I just want to have a word of caution. You know, our Lord does tell us that we are to be innocent of doves, but we are also to be sh as shrewd as what? Serpents. We, we know that those who do not know our Savior know that those who know Christ are compassionate people. So they will target us. Understand, as a church, we will never ask you to get for money personally. Anything that we do is either through our budget that we vote on as a church congregation or if it's a matter of compassion, it flows through our deacon's account that, that you give to the benevolence fund that way. We will never personally ask for money. So just a word of caution as you never know when these schemes may come up and, and they're very sophisticated, they're very sharp, they know how to prey on, on our compassion. Now, this evening, as I said, we will tell you more about our trip to Chad, but I do want to mention one significant event that, that we learned about in the life of the Chadian church this morning. In 1960, Chad installed a new president that began to lead the nation towards independence. And as Chad became more independent, this president became more and more of a dictator. By 1973, part of the activities that this man was, was instituting was a forced cultural revolution for the country. It was a forced rejection of, of Western ways. The, this man's headquarters was in the town that, that we ministered in, this southern town of Sar that we were at. That was his headquarters. Sar happens to be the center of the Baptist church movement in, in, in Chad. In fact, um, Baptist Mid-Mission celebrates 100 years next year that they've ministered in Chad. So this is the center of, of that movement that now has hundreds of churches and, and this man's headquarters there. And at one time, this man had been affiliated with Baptist churches. But by this point in his life, he was under church discipline. Well, for many months in 1973, tensions were growing between this president and the leaders of the, the Chadian Baptist churches, specifically around his renewal of what was called tribal initiation rites. He was making these tribal rights part of, of this cultural revolution, and he was making them compulsory. Well, these rights are connected with a long history of idolatry in, in the tribal practices of Chad, so for that reason, they were being rejected by Baptist church leaders. 
In November of 1973, the president called 14 of the leading Baptist pastors and deacons to his residence, and he ordered that they kneel down before him in, in contrition. They, they refused, and they were taken out to a field on the edge of town and shot. That began a time of intense persecution for the, the church in Chad. Well, that history is, I'm sure, unfamiliar to you. It was unfamiliar to me till I learned about it. So let's talk about American history. In 1999, two teenagers entered Columbine High School. They proceeded to kill 12 students and one teacher. I'm sure this is history we all remember, right? This was our history. This was the first mass high school shooting in our country. Among those killed that day was Rachel Scott, a young woman who had tried to befriend one of the shooters. Another student reported that as Rachel Scott was killed, she was being mocked for the faith that she had in, in Christ. So here we have two reports, other sides of the world, opposite from one another, one in our country, one far away from us. But in both cases, these are people that were killed, at least in part, because of their faith. Now, in, in both cases, if we think about the situation Chad and we think about the situation Columbine, in both cases, there was no reason to believe that the, the people who killed those they killed had any particular animosity towards those individuals. They did not hate those people because of a relationship they had with those people. They hated those people because they hated God. The extreme hatred was re that resulted in their murders was a hatred of God. Men hated God, and God's people were simply swept up in that hatred. As we'll see in our psalm this morning, this kind of hatred is nothing new. We're, we're returning to our series through the third book of the, the five books that comprise the Psalter in our Bibles. We find ourselves this morning in Psalm 83. Like many of the psalms, uh, this psalm refers to circumstances within the history of the nation of Israel. Circumstances that are not familiar to us because they're not our history, plus they're ancient history from our perspective. Many of the historic enemies of, of, his, of Israel are lifted in this psalm, but, but there's really nothing about the, the psalm that, that ties it to a specific known event. Rather, what, what binds the group of enemies together that we see in, in this psalm is the perennial intent that nations had to destroy Israel. A, a situation that Israel faced many times in its history. Frankly, all we have to do is turn on the modern news and we see it continues to be a situation that Israel faces. People want to destroy the nation. Israel was the chosen people of God. God, the, the one true living God at the time of our psalm, identified himself with this single nation. And that alone was enough to cause people to want to destroy it. Likely, the, the raging nations that, that often were, were coming against Israel, they did not even realize that it was their hatred of God that caused them to hate Israel. Their hatred was simply hatred. We no longer face the nations that are listed in the psalm that we'll look at today. Most of these nations no longer exist. Our historical circumstances have changed. Still, we will find that, that we can relate to the psalm 
because life circumstances have not changed. People still seek the destruction of God's people. Psalm 83 naturally breaks into two sections. The, the first eight verses make up the first section, and in these first eight verses, we're reminded that God's people are always surrounded by hatred. Always. God's people are always surrounded by hatred. Let's read the, the first eight verses. O oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and O oh God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they have made a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. The, the psalm here is a prayer. It, it begins with an address to God. It's a prayer. The psalm is, is leading the people of the nation there to, to cry out to God, to, to take the distress they're feeling at, at their, their trials and, and cry out to God. The, the greatest danger that he identifies is, is that God will remain a silent onlooker. Their only hope is that God will do something. That God will come to their aid. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. Oh God, do not be still. Let me ask, before we look any further in the psalm, does that cry resonate with you? You know God is aware of all things, right? God's omniscient. We've all been in Sunday school enough. What are the attributes of God? We know the omnis. God's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. We can name that. He, he knows all things. So, of course, he knows what's going on, including my problems. So, you don't doubt that. But do you doubt that God is going to do something about your problems? Are you afraid that God is simply going to watch you go through your times of trial? That, that he'll remain silent, he'll remain inactive. He won't do anything about your problems. After all, you're just a little you, right? Why would God do anything for you or me? The cries that we see here, do not be silent, do not be still. Those convey urgency. The, the, the situation is, is desperate. Is, is the situation you're facing one that you need God to do something right now? Is your situation urgent? Because of my trip to Chad, it, it's been a month since we looked at, at Psalm 82. Each of the Psalms are independent poems. We, we understand that. Still, we have them now in the Psalter here. They're arranged for us. And it's evident as we examine how they're arranged that there was care placed into the arrangement. Well, well Psalm 82 ended with a call for God to arise. Psalm 83 picks up that call. It cries out to God to, to not only rise, but to do something. Do something because the need is great. God's people are surrounded by hatred. 
We, we see how Israel was surrounded here with the list of ten nations there in, in verses 6, 7, and 8. These are nations that were perennial threats against Israel. I'm not going to take a time to pull up a map and point to where these nations were located. Suffice it to say that basically they, they surround Israel. If you do the map, the only side not listed is where the Mediterranean Sea is because nobody, no nation exists in the sea. From there on, Israel's looped by these nations. Rather than spend time at, at looking at a map, let's spend time looking at the text. There are two things that I want us to notice from the first eight verses. Two things that become clear as we consider how Israel is surrounded by hatred. One, we need to recognize that the people's hatred is ultimately against God. His hatred is ultimately against God, the, the hatred of people. Look at verse 2. The, the psalmist tells God that these people are your enemies. These are those who hate you. Verse 5, the covenant they make is against you. Now, now the reality is that the ten nations that are lifted here, they never actually formed a covenant with one another against Israel. In fact, all ten did not exist at the same point in history at any time along the way with, with Israel. The, the point that Psalm is making is, is that this hatred that they have against Israel is so uniform, it's as if they had gotten together somewhere in a back room and conspired. How are we going to destroy Israel? They are united as if they have one mind. Yet the psalmist makes it clear that the one they're really railing against is God. Their hatred is against him. Of course, the, the ultimate reason for their hatred against God is, is clear in verse 2. They hate God because they want to exalt themselves. They don't want to have to acknowledge God. They don't want to submit to God's rule. They don't want to bow before anyone. Rather, they, they want to be their own gods. They want to be their own rulers. They, they want to sit on their own thrones and project their own glory. Furthermore, they want everyone else to agree that they have the right to exalt themselves as well. They want everyone to acknowledge that their glory is truly exaltation worthy. Friends, this is just the root of all sin. The attempt to exalt self is the denial of God. That's the core problem that, that Paul addresses in Romans 1. He, he writes in verse 23 how, how mankind exchanged the, 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 the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Rather than exalt and worship God, mankind simply wants to exalt and worship self. Romans 1 then ends by, by demonstrating that, that this naturally destructive course of sin is never satisfied until it finds others that will give hearty approval to the exaltation of self. Let all people bow before me. Of course, we see what happens when all people are saying, let all people bow before me. Nobody's left to bow and everybody's trying to get on their throne and you have nothing but chaos. Everyone sits around in the center of their own little universe as the most exalted being means there's no possibility of peace. Competition, envy, those are the only possibilities that, that remain. And that leads to hopelessness and despair. Friends, we are surrounded by people 
who hate God. We're surrounded by people whose hatred leads to hopelessness and despair. I know that even though you're sitting here this morning, you may actually be one of the people surrounding us. Just the, the fact that you're sitting here today doesn't mean that your life is not still summed up by hatred of God. Like people in nations surrounding Israel, you may not even realize that your hatred is directed against God. Yet you know that your life is not yielded to God. You know that you are not serving God. You know that you are not one of God's because you cannot be until you accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Unless you've accepted Jesus as Savior, you are living as one who is exalting yourself. You're living as one who is trying to set up on throne and say, worship me because I worship me. You're living as one whose life leads to hopelessness and despair. I also realize that, that maybe the only thing I've said at this point that makes any sense to you whatsoever is the comment of hopelessness and despair. Maybe nothing else makes any sense because you don't see how your life is filled with hatred or how you've rejected Jesus. But you know hopelessness and despair. If so, then, then my offer to you is, is come talk to me after the service. I, I would love to spend time showing you how there's an answer in Scripture for hopelessness and despair. And how that is, one, connected to a rejection of God and two, addressable through the offer of Jesus Christ. Talk to me. The first thing we see in the first section of our psalm is that people's hatred is ultimately against God. The second thing notice, though, is that people's hatred is directed against God's people. It's directed against God's people. They hate God, but they strike out at God's people. God is untouchable, but his people are well within reach. Look at verse 3. They make shrewd plans against your people. They don't make their plans against God. They make their plans against God's people. They conspire together against your treasured ones. Let me be clear, it is certainly not the case that being one of God's cherished people means that your life is going to be easy. Being one of God's chosen one under God's protection does not mean that you're carefree. I don't care what Joel Olstein and all the other health wealth preachers say. That is not what scripture says. In fact, scripture seems to say over and over and over that the opposite is what we ought to expect. That being one of God's children means our life is going to be hard because we're surrounded by people who hate God and strike out against us. Being in one of God's treasured ones means that those who hate God will decide to do all that they can to wipe them out. Why did these ten nations want to wipe Israel out of existence? During, during, if you think about it, during most of Israel's history, this was a very tiny nation. It, it was not a threat militarily to the surrounding nations, nor was the land of Israel so valuable that other nations desired that plot of, of, of 
of land. Israel was not a nation that was filled with abundant natural resources. In fact, if you study the nations that are listed here, many of those nations were in much better shape in all of these categories of value than, than Israel ever was. So why do they want to wipe Israel from the face of the map? Because the Israelites were God's people. The hatred against them is irrational. But it's real nonetheless. It surfaced generation after generation. Their hatred against God was directed against God's people. Well, we recognize now that in the New Testament era, the people of God is the church of God. Israel is still, in a sense, the nation of God, but God, in the New Testament time, has set it aside. When the tribulation time comes, it will come back to the center of God's program again. But for now, the nation of Israel is set aside, and God's plan of redemption is flowing through the church. God identifies himself with the body of Christ, the church. People that are purchased with the blood of the Son. God loves the church because he loves his Son who gave himself for the church. We are now God's treasured ones. That means when we think about the hatred that God's, the people surrounding Israel had against God's treasured ones, we can expect that hatred now to be against us. There's no reason to think that the hatred that is directed our way will seem rational. It, it will not. It's because they hate God. All we have to do is state that we have some viewpoint that's contrary, or that they have some viewpoint contrary to God's will, and we'll experience this irrational hatred. For example, simply state that God is displeased by sexual activity outside of marriage and see what kind of response you receive. State that God's desire is that a young man and a young woman refrain from sex and watch the reaction. Now, realize you've, you've actually not hindered anyone from engaging in immorality when you've made that statement. I, I mean, you, you haven't locked any doors. You haven't gathered up any young people and put them in concentration camps for men and women so they can't interact with each other. You haven't done anything other than state that actions are contrary to God's will. All you've done is label immorality as contrary to God's will. You've communicated that you disprove because God disproves. That that's all you've done. But the condemnation of your viewpoint is going to be quite uniform. You've refused to give, as Romans 1 says, hearty approval to the sin of those who want to be on their own throne. And for that reason, you are now the enemy of those who hate God. We need to realize it is impossible for us to receive acceptance from the world. It's impossible if we are living as the people of God. What we can expect is hatred. People's hatred is directed against God's people. That's the second thing that we can notice here in the first section of the psalm. We can expect such. We are surrounded by people who hate God and that hatred will strike our way. 
The remainder of the psalm brings out a second point, though. A second main idea. A second thing that we see developed. And that is that, that when this hatred surrounds us and we experience it, the second thing we see is that God's people call out to God for deliverance from hatred. God's people call out to him. Let's pick up in verse 9 and read the rest of the psalm. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. Again here, the psalmist is setting his psalm in the historical context of, of his nation, so it's likely unfamiliar to us. References to places like Midian and Kishon and, and people like Sisera and Jabin, they're, they're, they're probably things that, that don't mean a lot to us. Yet Israelites who have immediately caught the references. Just as you caught the reference to Columbine, these references who have resonated to them, the, the psalmist is plucking out two of, of God's greatest victories during the time of the judges. E events that are recorded in Judges chapters 4 and 5 and, and 7 through 8. The, the psalmist here, he grabs these historical references and, and then he makes two contemporary points in the final verses. Contemporary at least to his day. First, he makes the point that God is called to defend his people. God is called to defend his people. You may not have thought about it as I read the verses. I know I didn't think about it until a commentator that I read this week pointed it out. But even though the psalmist here is referencing these well-known events from the judges, he doesn't mention the names of any of the people that God used in those events. The, the judges as we know them. For example, Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, those are two princes or kings that were killed by Gideon. But Gideon is not mentioned. By, by omitting the name of the judges, the, the psalmist here is emphasizing that God was the real deliverer of the nation. Yeah, God worked through people, but God was the one who delivered the nation. And in like fashion, the, the nation should call on God to deliver them again when they face new hostilities. And in verse 9, he calls for God to deal with them. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust. Uh, a reference to either a tumbleweed or blown chaff, something of that nature. Something that swirls. Verse 15, pursue them. Terrify them. Verse 16, fill their faces with dishonor. We, we have cry after cry here of God to, to come and defend his people. These people are attacking his people. Come now and defend in the time of the psalmist's life. He's bringing this into the here and now of his day. 
Well, friends, let's bring into the here and now of our day. We're entering an election year. See if I can get myself in trouble talking about politics here for a little bit. We're entering election year. Things are going to get quite charged, if, if you can believe that this year. Politically, I, I think as we go along, we, it's safe to say things are going to get a little charged. One caution I will give all of us from this psalm is let's remember as we go through this year that our deliverance will not come from any of the candidates that might run for office. They are not our deliverers. Our deliverer is God and God alone. If we find any defender at all for our surrounding nation, it's the one defender that we can call out to. It comes from calling out to God to defend us, to deliver us, to rise up for us. So, so rather than getting all wrapped up in, in what is going on politically in, in our country, we need to get all wrapped up in prayer. We need to cry out to God. We need to call to him. Re- remember what Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving may be, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul says, yeah, you've got all these kings and rulers and stuff around you. Pray that God uses them let you live a quiet, godly life. We need to pray that God will deliver us from those who hate us so that we can live in all godliness and dignity. Of course, Paul goes on in the very next verses and says, we want to live this quiet life so that we have a, a, a platform or an environment in which the gospel can move forward. You know, when you're trying to, to survive, it's hard to actually proclaim the gospel when you're, you're hiding from, from those who want to shoot you or take your life, it's hard to be witnessing. So Paul says, let's pray that we can have a quiet life where we can live in godliness and proclaim Christ. My challenge this year is for us to remain so focused on our theme, fear God, fear the Lord, that's our theme, that we would not allow ourselves to be sucked into the politics. Let's not think that politics will rescue us. In fact, let me go a step further. I'll challenge us. Let's strive together that we will spend as much time as we spend talking about politics praying for deliverance. How much time do you spend talking about politics? Either you're going to spend a whole lot more time on your knees or a whole lot less time talking about politics. One of the two if you're going to make those match. Because I know in my own life, it's way out of balance. Yeah, I think that's true across the board. We need to call on God to defend his people. God is called here in the psalm to defend his people. That's the first point that the psalmist makes as he points out to these past times of rescue, times God's worked before. He, God, rise up and do it again. And then he makes a second point. God is called to display his sovereign majesty. I didn't mention this at the outset, but the psalm begins with a double reference to God in verse 1. There's two different Hebrew words used in verse 1. For God, We translate them in our English versions both as God, 
but in Hebrew, they're separate. They're, they're two different words. Well, the psalm ends with another double reference for God. Two more Hebrew words that, that refer to God. This time our English translates them differently because one is translated capital L-O-R-D, Lord. It's the, the covenantal name for God, Yahweh, that's used. And then we have Most High. Well, by beginning and ending the psalm with these names for God, the psalmist is wrapping this prayer in the relationship that God has with his people. We also see, though, that as we wrap ourselves in this relationship, he ends with a focus on God, not on the plight of the people. We know the people in Israel are in trouble, but the psalm ends with a concern not for Israel's rescue, but that those in rebellion against God will come to know that God is the ultimate sovereign majestic in the universe. Rather than setting themselves up on their own thrones, worshiping themselves, they will come to know the one they should worship. In fact, in verse 16, the psalmist hopes that the enemies will seek the name of the Lord. That's a reference to bowing before him, to, to calling out to him, to come to truly know him as God while they can. Rather than continuing in the rebellion, they, they see the sovereign majesty of God and they bow in shame over the idea that they've exalted themselves. Rather than continuing in, in rebellion, they join the nation of Israel in worship. The, the psalmist ends his prayer here with a, God, with a call to God to display himself, his sovereign majesty above all. Folks, it's time for us to... to examine ourselves in our mental mirror this, this morning. So, so pull it out. Let's get our mental mirror in front of ourselves. Think about the concern of the psalmist here, the driving concern. There's all kinds of concerns in his life because they're, they're in danger, but the ultimate concern, the driving concern, is that God display his sovereign majesty. When we examine the, the many concerns of our lives, does that concern rise up to the level of our driving concern, our ultimate concern? When we go to God in prayer, do we spend most of our time asking for God to rescue us from our hardships? Or do we spend time asking him to display his glory through our lives? Are we more concerned to find alleviation from our ailments? Or to have opportunity to share Christ with the doctors that we see because of our ailments? Would we rather see our neighbor come to know God or simply let us live in peace? Do we risk, when we spend that time talking over the fence, do we risk sharing Christ? Or do we talk about what fertilizer they're using to make their grass look so green? Sharing Christ is risky. It's confrontational. It brings hatred about. Discussions of fertilizer or sports or weather or practically any other topic doesn't do that. What is our ultimate concern? God is sovereign. God is majestic. But God is ignored by most of his creation. He sent his son to save his creation. Christ 
is the ultimate display of God's sovereign majesty. He conquered sin and death. We're to point people to Christ. We magnify Christ. We do that so that God's sovereignty is displayed to his creation. So when you are looking at that mental mirror this morning, what do you see in your life? How are you living? Friday night, as many of you know, we had Pastor Tim Davis here for our couple's banquet. He spoke to us, and after the banquet, I was talking with him, and as we were talking, the topic of guilt came up. And I love how he expressed it. Guilt is not a feeling. It's a fact. So I'm not asking you to examine your life this morning so that you feel guilty about what you've done in the past. If you've not been living with the display of God's sovereignty as your ultimate concern, then you are guilty of self-centeredness. That's a fact. It's not a feeling. You're guilty of squandering the life that God has given you. Likely you're guilty of sin because you've put self over God. That's not something for you to feel. That is a fact established by the standard of God's word. But remember, the fact of your guilt is the exact reason that Christ came. Christ came to bear your guilt. He bore it to the cross. Your guilt was taken and nailed to that tree when he was nailed to it. We have no reason to feel guilty because the fact of our guilt is covered by Christ. Rather, what we are called to do is live a renewed life. To, to live going forward for God. Once we understand that, our concern becomes the concern of the psalmist. Our concern for life becomes that God is displayed. The God who has taken our guilt away is seen by others. Once we understand this, once we know Christ, we want the rest of the world, those who surround us with hatred, we want them to see the sovereign majesty of our God. We want them to see it displayed through us. So if we put all this together this morning, the way I would summarize the main idea of this psalm is that in the face of hatred from the world, our primary concern remains that God display his sovereign majesty. Yes, it's a long statement. But this is our concern. In the face of hatred from the world, because we are surrounded by hatred, as God's treasured people, we are surrounded by hatred. In the face of that hatred, our primary concern remains that God display his sovereign majesty. In 1973, 14 men from Chad died as they faced the surrounding hatred of their world. God's sovereign majesty remains on display in Chad. Again, let me give you a commercial. Come back tonight. We'll, Mike Coley and I will share more about that. But Christ is being proclaimed there. In 1999, a young woman lost her life in Columbine as well, here in our country. She faced the hatred of the world. God's sovereign majesty remains on display. Every time her story is told, Christ is proclaimed. We too are surrounded by hatred. God remains sovereign and majestic.
In the face of hatred from our worry, our world, our primary concern remains that God display his sovereign majesty. Proclaim Christ. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging your glory. Father, I pray this morning that you will have taught us from your word how we are to live in this world that hates us because ultimately they hate you. How we are to live joy-filled lives proclaiming the one who has saved us from the guilt that we bore in our rebellion against you. May we live our lives filled with joy proclaiming the, the joy that others may know because Christ is available for them as well. Father, may we live our lives with our greatest desire to be that your sovereign majesty be displayed to this world through Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.